And if you have God's word, we're going to be in the word a lot today. And there's several references I'm going to make and texts that we'll look at. And and we have one. It's in Matthew chapter five. And I'll get to that towards the end of the message. But uh, so you can kind of be thinking about that. But I'm just I just want to warn you ahead of time that, you know, there's a lot that we're going to wade through. Okay, and of course, we're in this this last message in regards to, you know, taboo topics. And this one here might be particularly sticky uh, because we're talking about, you know, politics. Um, And so I have a warning label. Let's throw that up there. I've never done this before. This is the very first time that I've ever done this in all of my years, 30 years of preaching. I'm putting up a warning label. Okay, and here's the warning label. Do not decide on what I'm saying before the end of the message today. Uh, because I can't tell you how many times I see somebody get up and walk out and they've only heard 10 minutes of the message. I mean, stick around. Right. And so I want to invite you just to, uh, of course, not be, you know, judge me, you know, too much or too harshly. And the fact is, you know, I'm not, you know, making a bid for sides. You know, it's not a political platform. We talk about politics. You know, we're not, you know, uh, affirming one platform over another. And and the fact is, I think in in community, and I mentioned that in our prayer time, that in community that there are going to be disagreements, but we're mature and we can have these discussions and we can have disagreements and we can agree to disagree agreeably. Have you ever heard that before? And so that's one of my first speeches I make at the beginning of the new church board year. When I meet with the board for the first time, we can agree to disagree agreeably. And so I, I want us to understand that, that there may be some disagreement and, and you may not like everything that I say or, or what somebody else is saying, but the, the key, we want to be in community and remember what the community is about. Now, now let me say, I need to get this just out of the way. Let me say that uh, many of the doctrines or the ideas that we have or often invest in, and I, I need you to really think about that for a moment. I mean, think about that sentence. Many of the doctrines or the ideas that we have or we invest in, you know, we're, we're gung ho. We're believing this and, it, and, it, and it's, you know, this is where we stand. Many of those are based in tradition, emotion or assumption and oftentimes have very little or no biblical support. And I have to establish that I need to I need to, you know, establish this as the baseline that it's not saying, OK, this is what's most palatable. And this is, you know, this feels the best. You know, this is the easiest to absorb, you know, because of culture or what have you. I mean, you see, that's not how we we move as people that are doctrinally sound and we have faith that is based on on a biblical doctrine. I mean, I, I believe that. And so what happens in the process, if we just embrace emotion or tradition or what have you, we, we kind of have the skewing thing that begins to happen, a skewing effect on, on truth, like the emerging idea that, that God is a loving God. Well, of course, you know, we know that's one of the greatest attributes of God, that, that God is a loving God. I mean, there's no question about that, that God is love. In fact, in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Right. For love is is from God. And so we embrace that and we understand that. But, you know, if we we are not allowing ourselves to be within the context of Scripture or have a biblical doctrine, then what happens is we begin to skew this. And so there's this emerging thought. I mean, how can God, who is a loving God, 
How, how can there be a hell? How can there be a reality of this thing that we we talk about that is called hell? And so the progressive thinking is that it's old fashioned or that it's not enlightened. And so we see sometimes in movements today the the really the death of hell itself. I mean, that concept. And, and here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. I share with fear and trembling and a compassionate heart this morning. Because that is far removed from what the Bible teaches us, because the doctrine of hell is clearly a part of Scripture. And granted, heaven and hell, when we think about those concepts of heaven and hell, and certainly there are different ways that there, there are descriptors in Scripture, or different ways or terminologies that are used in Scripture, terms that describe what heaven is and what eternity is and all that. Like, for example, in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus is said to have gone to Abraham's bosom. And then in John chapter 14, looking at verse 2, Jesus speaks of his father's house where he goes. And there are mansions there, and he prepares a mansion for you and I. And we mention that almost every funeral that we attend. We hear that verse. And so there's this descriptor, this idea that, okay, there is this place that is heaven, and, and there are mansions. And yet in other places, it is the kingdom of God, or is eternity, or paradise, or heaven. And so there's these different terminologies that we hear, we find in scripture, whether it is about hell or whether it's about heaven. Now, there are by one report, now get this, there are by one report, 60 verses that Jesus refers directly or indirectly to hell. Did you know that? There are 60 verses that Jesus refers to directly or indirectly about hell. So there's no question that hell is a a biblical doctrine. But the dangerous and ignorant mistake we often make, I think, is when we hear people say and we buy into the idea that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. And folks, that is a lie. That is not true. If you make the count, you look at the scripture, you count the verses. He is way more about love and way more about eternity and way more about, you know, everlasting life. And, and so sometimes we buy into these things that are skewing the truth. And we find ourselves that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And if we continue to promote a falsehood that severely undermines Christ's message and the love of God and the very fact that we are called, as Jesus does, to the greatest commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we're missing it completely. Turning Jesus' gospel of love into a gospel of fear and damnation and punishment is not only manipulative, it should not be our goal. You see, the message of Christ, it is a message of love. It is a message that Jesus, that God became flesh and he went to the cross and he he died on the cross that we might have everlasting life because Jesus loves us. Do I have an amen in the house at all that Jesus loves us? So, so needless to say, what we need is truth and balance. What we need is truth and balance. It, it's like the idea of unconditional love. I almost called you Bob because or Dr. Smith, because I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this with you. The idea of unconditional love and how how things are skewed oftentimes in this area that that we begin to embrace this again, a progressive idea of thinking that unconditional love is that anything goes. You know, that anything goes, we can live any way, we can, we can live without accountability, we can live as if, you know, because it's all love, 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 love. But yet we maybe need to ask the question, and I know I'm meddling, I've said that many times, but I know I'm meddling. The question, does God's love have conditions? 
And that might make you uncomfortable for me to even ask that question. Does God's love have conditions? Well, let's talk about what it's not. And you're filling the notes here. Uh, It's not a saving love. Else everybody would be saved since they would not have to meet any conditions, not even faith. But Jesus himself says that everybody's not saved. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46 in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And if you want to make a note of the references, I think I, I have them for you. But you look at those passages And you see, not everybody is saved. So it's not a saving love. It's not a a love that justifies sinners, since the Bible says that we're justified by faith. And so faith is the condition for salvation. Romans chapter 5, looking at verse 1. It's not the love of working all things together for everybody. You know, again, this love, love, love. It's not for everybody. We look at Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God. For those who love God and, and respond to God and, and his presence in our life as we proclaimed and celebrated in baptism this morning. That he's working out the good for good those of those who love him. So how then does God, how does God love unconditionally? How does God love unconditionally? Two ways, and, and we need to tie this off because we're talking about politics. But, but I, I need to say this now, bear with me. He loves us with electing love unconditionally. There's the unconditional. He loves us with electing love unconditionally. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And so there's the electing love. It's that prevenient grace that God is working on our behalf. Hallelujah. He's working on our behalf before we ever respond to him. And so it's this electing love and, and, and he loves us unconditionally. He loves us with regenerating love before we meet any condition. The new birth is not God's response to our meeting the condition of faith. Think about that. On the contrary, the new birth enables us to believe. The new birth enables us to believe. For it's by grace you're saved by faith. This is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. It's the faith that is not of ourselves. You see, it's God that gives us the capacity of faith. He doesn't give a lion the capacity of faith. He does not give a giraffe the capacity of faith. He gives us human, humankind, Kelly, humankind, the capacity for faith. Amen. He gives us he gives us the capacity of everlasting life because of the faith, the ability of faith he enables us with. And I notice this. This is exciting to me now. I notice that that everything that happened hinges on what God is doing, what God is doing in us, what God is doing for us as God is wooing us and God is enabling us. And you know, so it all hinges on that. And then in first John five, one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's the promise. And then we go to John 1.13. We were born not of the will, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. I don't think I had that, but of God. So of the will of God. Okay, now, I have a line right here in my notes, a bold line. Because if we experience salvation, I mean, if, if, if we have salvation in its entirety... And, and, and we are hidden in Christ and Christ is hidden in us. Then the question maybe we're not supposed to ask is what are we obligated to say when it comes to politics? I mean, if Christ is living in us, salvation has been experienced in its entirety. I know I'm repeating myself, but this we have to get this. If we are hidden in Christ, what are we obligated to say? 
I mean, this is we have to think because often our ideas, remember, are emotionally tying it to the introduction, emotionally driven or our tradition or our families always held this position. I mean, it's palatable. It sounds good. I mean, it's just, you know, it's what we do. I'll never forget the afternoon I visited with this precious lady about 80 years old, 81. And uh, she was not very healthy. And I would buried her husband and I'd been walking with her about three years and. We had done the husband's funeral and, and for some reason, as we were, I was making my pastoral call, a topic came up. I'm not going to tell you what the topic is. A topic came up, political topic, but yet it's a moral topic. And, and I asked her, how come you support that? Why do you believe that way? And, 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 and it was just kind of completely vague, 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 vague. And finally, she said, well, Pastor, I don't know. I mean, that's what my family's always, my family's always been there. That's what my family's always believed. And then she started crying, and I wasn't trying to make her cry. Bless her heart, we were dear friends, and, and we, we continue to be dear friends. But she started crying, and she says, I guess, Pastor, I need to... I need to change the way I think and I need to repent. And then I go, oh, I don't know if you need to repent, but it's good to think because then I began to share with her some scriptural foundation in regards to what she was thinking about. And she was so locked into her tradition and her mindset that it was hard for truth to get in there. And in the process, of course, truth does get in there. And there's this man, radical, emotional shift in her life. Now, it's needless to say, I understand that politics, I mean, especially in church, it's the elephant in the room. And it's big, you know, invisible, and we're all bumping against it. And maybe the protocol is to say nothing. And whether you're a person that would have me take a harder line or one that would want me to carefully craft every thought and word to not offend anybody. It's really a tightrope walk. It really is a tightrope walk like I was reading one pastor in an article he is writing about his experience. And he says, man, these are such difficult times. And I mean, I could really resonate with this pastor. And he said, because he said in, in the last few months, I had one family leave the church because I have been too political. And then I had another family leave the church because I've not been political enough. <laughs> And so we have to admit these are difficult times. And the fact is discussions in the political realm are impacting moral and ethical issues. And, and some of the things are on the line, man. And, and the oddity, it's okay to discuss it in elections and that kind of platform, that kind of forum, and talk about moral and ethical things. Oh, it's great to go at it then. But when it comes to, you know, the personal conversation or church, we, 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 we have to, you know, back up. We, we, we can't say anything. And, and, and what my mind is, I'm boggled with this. How can we not have a thought on what is moral or ethical? How, how can we not have a thought about that? What are we obligated to do now to put some... You know, kind of rubber on the shoe, so to speak. How, how, how can we respond? I mean, what are we obligated to do? And that was kind of the question. Well, here we are, a couple challenges. The first one is we have mission communities, small groups and Sunday schools. Here's my challenge that Bible studies should not tiptoe around sensitive topics. 
I mean, within the context of Scripture and, and with it, the help of Scripture that we're not to, you know, just, you know, tiptoe around and all oh, say we can't talk about that. But we need to process that. You see, the temptation is to relegate ourselves to a position of impotence on issues of like abortion or LGBTQ and any other sensitive topics. And I know I'm, I'm meddling again, but but folks were meant to live out our faith. We're meant to live out our faith in, in this modern world and everyday life. And we can't be sequestered or, or impotent. We, 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 we can't, you know, not speak, but we can speak up and we can rise up and we can say, this is truth. This is truth. And folks, I believe you will be surprised what God will do when you're willing to say, this is my conviction. This is truth. I'll never forget the uh, Castellanos, David and Laura Castellano. They had come to one of our, our harvest fests about three years in a row. And they just, they saw that it was free on the campus of the church and they came and they enjoyed this wonderful festivity like we do here. And this was another state, but anyhow, after about three years, they decided to come to church and lo and behold, the Sunday that they attended church for the very first time, I preached a rip roaring message on salvation. I talked about Jesus. And that is a surprise. And what happened is they came to the altar and man, it was a tearful moment and they repented and they asked Jesus to come into their life. And Daniel's from Argentina and he got up and he gave me a big old kiss. And normally men don't kiss me in church, but he gave me this big old kiss. And anyhow, they got radically saved. And a few months later, they felt a call to, to ministry. Daniel once wanted to be a pastor. And so I said, well, set up a meeting. Let's talk about this and come to my office. And so Daniel and Laura came to my office, sat in two chairs. They were holding hands and so excited. They said, but pastor, yeah, I want to be a pastor, but I need to tell you something. Uh, we're living together. We're living together. And I said, okay. And he said, but I want to be a pastor, so we need to get married. Unless We need to get married. I said, okay. I said, well. I said, I'm trying to, I'm listening and I'm praying and I'm, I'm trying to listen to the Lord. I said, tell you what, Daniel, here's what's on my heart. If you and Laura, I, I will do your ceremony. If you and Laura will stop relations for six months and you, you do that, you separate, stop relations. And for six months, we'll plan the ceremony out there and I will disciple you, both of you. And Daniel and Laura, I, I thought they were going to get up and run out of the office. I thought they were going to be angry. I thought they were going to say, I'm so judgmental. You know, I'm so judgmental. And you guess what happened? They submitted. And they did stop relations. And they did get mentored and discipled. And he just got ordained. I believe this spring he just ha- got ordained and has his own congregation. Be- because the challenge was laid out there. And you will be surprised when when you're really willing to, you know, give the challenge and speak the truth. And, and so our, our second challenge, our second challenge is, is how do we draw a line between love thy neighbor and yet not approving of a particular lifestyle? I mean, this is really a balance. I mean, this is a tightrope walk if there is ever one. I mean, how? I mean, the greatest commit. How do we love thy neighbor? And yet not, you know, prove of a particular lifestyle. And remember now, we're, we're taking our, our cue from Jesus. I understand the internal conflict of pushing aside and rather, you know, thinking about it and, and maybe, you know, just, you know, saying nothing. But, but we're taking our cue from Jesus and, and Jesus did not compromise the character of a loving God. 
of a merciful God, a forgiving God. And remember, knowing the son means that we know the father. Knowing the father means that we know the love of the father and that God is loving and he is merciful. I know it sounds like I'm vacillating, you know, on, on what you might, you know, categorize, you know, one way of thinking or another. But folks, you see, that's my position is not to tell you how to stand or where to stand. My position is to represent the living Savior of our Father, Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about, there is a rhythm in the church. There is a beat in the church. There is a drum that is beating. And one drum is to stick to the basic tenets of our faith and past traditions and grace and mercy and radical hospitality. And it will eclipse and go beyond all politics. And I mean, that thought. While there is another beat in the church, there's another drum that is beating to the tune that Jesus' love was so radical that it was countercultural. But listen, allegiance to the Father, and I have this in italics, John, allegiance to the Father cost Jesus something. He was crucified. Allegiance to the kingdom means that you're not going to please everyone. It means that we can't please everyone. I mean, if, if, if possible, we are looking more like the world than we are looking like Christ. If we're, you know, so conformed and adapted to the culture and we're looking more like the world than we are Christ, maybe we need to rethink our faith. Because Jesus, in his allegiance to the kingdom and the Father, it, 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 it was sacrificial. Now, it is possible and likely that our faith and devotion to Christ should transcend emotional knee-jerk reactions that debase the foundations of what we believe in. Yes, but sometimes the only thing we can do is humble ourselves before someone gives us permission, before someone allows us to share, before someone allows us to love them and show that love. Sometimes we just have to be humble And sometimes the most loving thing is to keep silent. But no, Jesus did not die because of hateful accusations or violent judgment or violent behavior on his part. Jesus died. Listen, Jesus died because he loved those who hated him. So so what are our marching orders? Can we call ourselves followers of the Prince of Peace and not condemn violence born of bigotry and hate? Likewise, I I don't see how we can read the story of Jesus welcoming the children when he says, Suffer little children, forbid them to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven, and then have no emotion and nothing to say about migrant children being separated from their parents on the southern border. And I I understand, again, I'm meddling, and these are polarizing topics and, and topics that are a hotbed for discussion. But remember, being a good person is only part of the gospel. It's only part of the gospel. That's what I represent as I stand on, on, on behind this, this table this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's likely, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking, it's likely their marching orders will land somewhere in the middle. Oh, not in the middle of compromise. But it'll land somewhere in the middle of the holiness of God. Remember the last two Sundays? Be holy. Be holy. And so I will land somewhere in this middle of what it means to be holy. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at 15 and 16, but, at, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So, so be holy. So, so what's my official response? Now, hang on. This is it. I, I have these, these thoughts I want to pull together. What is my official response? So I have a response for, for me and for you. I mean, when it comes to how do we process this and these topics and these discussions, what's my response? So my official response for me and an official response for our nation, official response for a nation. Here's the first one. Go to uh, go to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to, you know, really the perfect standard and the gauge, you know, really for everything that we say, every discussion that we have, every topic that we begin in regards to politics. If we are bathed in the spirit and bathed in this attitude, the attitude of Christ. Then I believe that God will have your back. And we begin in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is understanding that that you see everything that we have. Remember, hinges on everything God is doing. It hinges on what God has done for us and doing for us and, and that we, we need God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're poor and we are nothing without Christ. Where theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Can you imagine if you really have empathy, if you really understand what, what the other person is feeling and you're walking in their shoes and you're mourning with them and all that's going to affect and that's going to inform your response and your conversation. Blessed are, are those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth that's not the weak, but that is those that are meek, which is, has a lot to do with wisdom. It has a lot to do with listening instead of jumping and judging conclusions. It has to do with listening so that we can have empathy and we can respond. Six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God will give you righteousness. He will give you wisdom and you'll know how to walk upright and holy and with integrity. And you'll know how to walk as Jesus would have you walk to walk like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I'm saying this. Show me mercy and I'll show you mercy and I'll show you mercy. You show me mercy. Let's be merciful to one another. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they will see God, holiness, integrity, purity. We spoke about that last Sunday. Blessed are the peacemakers. Wow. Is that rife with political ramifications? Peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And again, remember, they crucified Christ. They killed him. And that's the challenge. If I am bathing there and I'm present there and I'm capturing what Jesus is teaching, I mean, entirely and fully, then I can have the discussions and I can discuss all the topics. And the Lord will help me. The challenge for our nation, Second Chronicles chapter 7, looking at verses 13 and 14. Let's turn there, Second Chronicles. If I choose the sky... 
If I, excuse me, if I close the sky so there is no rain or I command the locusts to devour the land or if I send a plague among my people, this is defining difficult times. I mean, I'm talking about tumultuous, rough times in that day, in that context. I mean, polarizing times. Sound familiar? I mean, these are really difficult times. And if my people, looking at verse 14, and if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The beginning of any healing, the beginning of any victory uh, and reconciliation starts with acknowledgement, acknowledging that we need God, acknowledging that we need God and we want to confess to him and want to repent to him and ask God, help us, Lord. Lord, heal our land, heal our hearts, heal our family. I, I, I don't know what the Lord is stirring in you and maybe God is just kind of preparing you so that you can you can in the spirit of Christ have discussion about particular topics or or something that you need to address or or quite possibly maybe the Lord is just you know, helping you as a family. But I want us to remember the spirit of Christ. That's what we stand. That's who we represent is Christ. Whatever that is, whatever it is that we're facing. I want us to pray together. Let's stand. And we're going to just go to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Father in heaven, today we just come before you. We bow our heads. And we're humble, Lord, that we get to come together in this holy place. Think upon heavenly things. And try to merge that with our earthly reality. And it's complex sometimes. But, Father, I believe that you have already given us what we need. And that you have given us your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would just speak to that one as... We are learning what it means to be peacemakers, what it means to show mercy, what it means, Lord, to bless those who mourn, what it means to be your children. I pray that, Father in heaven, that you would just, Lord, speak to that one right now. And maybe in in the simple term of being holy. You call us to be holy. That it's the holiness of your love that, Lord, maybe is not being projected out of us. And so we need to be merciful. And we need to be loving. But, Lord, it's possible that you call us to a place where we're able to differentiate between trying to connect and relate, but yet not turning away from the truth. And so, Father, make us wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Give us, Lord, your words, your holy presence, that, Lord, that we can, Lord, just respond in a way that glorifies you. So, Father, I just pray that you would just speak to that heart this morning. Lift them, bless them, Lord Jesus, that's been wrestling with these things. Lord, we thank you for for being our hope. We thank you for moving us out of darkness into the light. And so, Father, today we just love you. We rejoice in you. We thank you for giving us this message today. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's glorious name. Amen.